0: And chat is brought to you by Walters with only 22 home games left this season. Walters is bringing out some new menu items beginning this week. A fresh mozzarella Capri sandwich with heirloom tomato on a sun-dried tomato ciabatta roll. An ahi tuna poke bowl with cauliflower, rice, carrots, radish, and pickled red onions. And the hottest food trend on TikTok, a smoked cream cheese with pulled beef, scallions, and pickled jalapenos.
1: Make the last bit of your summer a fun one at Walters. Reservations for this weekend series against Atlanta are available now at waltersdc.com/reservations. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search
2: for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data
3: and the pitch swinging a fly ball well hit to center sending Robles back on the run to the track to the wall and it's gone two run homer Aussie Albies Braves lead two to one his 18th of the season and two pitches after a hit by the pitcher Albies sends one out and the home run bug bites Corbin again the old one to Bell, swung on, hit hard, and right at the second baseman, Albie's up with it, and the throw to Freeman at first, and the game is over. So the Nationals strand the tying run
0: at second, rally in the ninth comes up just short. And welcome to Natchat Chat for Monday, August 9th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Another loss for the Nationals on Sunday afternoon. We thought we might be seeing a series victory for the Nationals for what would have been a second consecutive weekend. Such was not the case. It felt for a moment like we might be seeing another ninth inning comeback for the Nationals on Sunday afternoon, but that ended up not being the case. A 5-4 Nats loss at the Atlanta Braves as the Nats dropped two or three games in this series. You know, it's funny, Mark, the Nats obviously have been losing a lot uh, since the start of July, but since the sell-off the losing is coming in relatively close games. Like the Nets got blown out quite a bit, interestingly enough, prior to the sell-off. You know, things like that 24-8 loss that happened prior to the sell-off. Most of these losses since then have been close, but of course they have been losses. And at the end of the season, you don't get credit for close losses, but for whatever that's worth, the Nets aren't getting demolished in these games.
1: Look, they bring the tying run to the plate at minimum in the ninth inning every night, it seems like. And, yeah. you know, I use that as like my joking, I I use the Davy line, the boys are battling, but it is true. I mean, they actually are giving themselves a chance in every one of these games, and you can tell they're doing this despite being really undermanned as far as their lineup is concerned. I mean, these are shells of the lineups that we've become used to seeing from the Nationals. They're doing this despite, you know, very few sure things in their rotation at the moment, and they're doing it with a bullpen that has hardly anybody with any actual late-inning experience. So, you know, in some ways, I think it's okay to be mildly encouraged by it, or at least by the way that they're playing. And I'm not hugely surprised because I think we've seen in the past that when this team, in the years they haven't made the playoffs, when they kind of get to that point that they realize it, they suddenly get a little looser and they start just playing the game the way they know how to without that pressure that's hovering over them. You combine that with some young enthusiasm from these new guys who don't care what the team's record is. They're trying to make a name for themselves and lay the groundwork for the future. And I'm not surprised necessarily that that's what's gone on here. We'll see if it continues, maybe as they start facing some tougher opponents, it could get tougher. But I mean, it's striking the difference right now between the Nationals, even though they're losing just the way they're playing, versus let's say the Mets, who we're about to see this week, who are in complete panic mode right now. Having fallen into third place, the owner is going into the clubhouse to talk to guys. The manager is calling games Absolute must wins in early August. I mean, they are in sheer panic mode right now, feeling all kinds of pressure. The Nats, who obviously are out of it in far different position than the Mets, are just kind of going out and playing baseball right now. And, and we're going to see those two things converge this week at City Field.
0: Yeah, the Mets are a mess. I never trusted them as a first place team. I don't think you did either. The Mets now have lost 9 of 11, swept at the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend. And the Mets now in third in the National League East. The Phillies are atop the division. The Braves now in second place in the division. But I think long ago, the national stopped monitoring truly the National League standings. And That's now, in case you care, are nine games out of first in the division. So there actually are some interesting things from this game on Sunday to get into. And Patrick Corbin was the Nats' starting pitcher. And Ryan Zimmerman had some really interesting things to say to you guys after the game. We'll get to that in a moment. But this was another bad outing for Patrick Corbin. And when we talk about, well, what matters here down the stretch of the season versus what doesn't, I think Corbin matters a lot. Year three of a six-year, $140 million deal they need this guy to get back on track. Like to me, it's not an option that like, okay, Corbin shot. Like, no, 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 no. That can't be the case here. Okay. He's got to get fixed at some point either this season or next season. Otherwise you're in even deeper trouble than we ever thought. And you know, he's trying. I mean, this isn't like a guy who's going out there and has just given up, but man, every game, it just feels like it just ends up not being good enough. Even though for like pockets of these games, you do see him look good. And this game on Sunday was similar to his previous outing, that 5-4 loss to Philadelphia at Nats Park this past Tuesday night, in which for stretches of the game, you felt good. I mean, Corbin was working quickly and you know pretty effectively early in the game. But at the end of the game, the Patrick Corbin line is five runs in six innings. Now, he only gave up five hits. He did have five strikeouts versus one walk. He threw 45 strikes versus 23 balls. Like There actually were things to like about his outing. But of course, at the end of the day, It's about run prevention, and that wasn't there. Three of the five hits that he gave up were costly two-out extra base hits, and that's what doomed him. Two, two two-out, two-run homers and a two-out RBI double. The home run problem continues for Corbin, and you know, if he was a young pitcher, maybe we could say, well, he did this, he did that, but he's not. He's paid to be better than this. He's not better than this, and Mark, the ERA for Corbin now on the year is up to 583, 22 starts into the season. The guy's got an ERA
1: of 583 and that is the highest ERA in the majors among qualifying pitchers, Al. The highest. There's a lot of names out there you can look at and say, well, wait, aren't those guys worse? Well, no, they either have a lower ERA or they haven't pitched enough innings to qualify. Right now, Patrick Corbin owns the highest ERA. And on top of that, he's now given up 37 home runs over the last two seasons in 180-something innings, and that is second most in the majors, only Jordan Lyles of the Rangers has given up more at 38, and that's the story. And that's why these starts, especially recently, have been so agonizing because he legitimately looked good for five innings in this game. The slider was on point. The command, the quick outs, he got through the fifth inning on 46 pitches. That's insane. He never does that. No, None of these guys ever do that. That is insane how quickly he's getting outs. And then at the end of the day, you look up and he's given up five runs because it's all falling apart, usually in one inning. It's often for him either the first inning or his last inning. And because the mistakes that he makes are ending up over the fence. Like I said, 37 home runs the last two years. And in this game, all but one of the runs score on home runs. The killer won the two-run homer by Adam Duvall in the sixth. And how does that happen when one mistake is always leaving the yard? It's not, they aren't lining singles. They're blasting him over the fence, especially late in games. He's not tired. He's only thrown 68 pitches at that point. So what's going on? And he's frustrated by it. He doesn't really have a good answer for it. But you mentioned Ryan Zimmerman, and he said afterwards what I think a lot of us have kind of privately wondered ever since the World Series in 2019.
3: I think a lot of people forget (laughs) he was, for lack of better words, abused in 2019 in in the playoff run you know, he did things that he has never done before for us to win that World Series. I think people think that you just recover from that and come back the next year and everything's fine. Well, you come back the next year and they have the, you know, spring training and then you get shut down and then you have to start up again. You know, I'm not making excuses for for Pat, but, you know, in the beginning of this year, the first 10 or 14 days, whatever it was, he was on the, the COVID stuff.
1: So obviously Zim's not trying to make excuses for him as he Pointed out there, but he is saying something that I think a lot of us have wondered. And that is, did that extreme workload in October of 2019? And what he's talking about is all the relief appearances in between his starts, capped off by the three innings of relief in game seven of the World Series, that there is a domino effect of all that. And you throw that into everything else that he's dealt with, including being on the COVID IL to start this year. And it's like he's never gotten back to who he is. So I don't know if that's what it is, but certainly there's reason to think that that had some effect on him. Here's all I know. They've got three more years of him under contract for $82 million. He's healthy. This isn't Steven Strasburg. He is healthy. He's going to be a part of this team moving forward. They have to figure out, he has to figure out a way to be effective. He doesn't have to be elite, but he's got to be effective.
0: So the Zimmerman comments to me were really interesting. And I don't think they're without merit, but I would say a couple of things. So number one. A lot of guys have been pushed in postseasons the way Corbin was pushed in that 2019 postseason and not been ruined forever. Okay, I mean, Corbin in the 2019 season, that was his age 29 season. And it's not like this was some aging guy. And you're like, well, I don't know. He doesn't have much left in the tank to begin with. Like, no, I mean, he was a a guy who had had a good year. Yeah, he got pushed a little bit that postseason. But that's happened a lot of times in baseball history. And while some do fall off the next year, like a good example of that to me is Nate Evaldi of the Boston Red Sox, who was pushed hard in the 2018 postseason, then struggled in 2019, but has since bounced back more or less from that. But the other thing I would say is this, there was a shortened season in 2020. So to whatever extent Corbin's workload was increased dramatically in 2019, wouldn't you think the effects of a mere 60-game season in 2020 would have counteracted that? I mean, Patrick Corbin in the 2020 season only made 11 starts only pitched 65 and two-thirds innings. Like you would think that the body would have had enough time by now. I mean, October, 2019, we're in August, 2021 to have recovered substantially enough. I mean, I know it's not necessarily as simple as that, but it's not like he was pushed hard in 2019 and then through 220 innings in 2020, through 65 and two-thirds innings in 2020. So I'm not sure how much that has to do with it. I think it is interesting. I don't want to just entirely dismiss it. Here's the other thing too. I was thinking about Mark with Corbin. When's the last time the Nationals had a starting pitcher have this bad of a season, and I'm talking about like a guy who doesn't get hurt in a season, or at least doesn't miss much time due to injury in a season. This guy's ERA is almost six. Twenty two starts into the season, like there haven't been that many really bad seasons for National starting pitchers over the last decade or so, right? And that's have been really fortunate in that regard. But you, like you think about some of the guys who've had bad seasons, like Annabelle Sanchez had a bad season last year, but again that was a shortened season. Tanner Roark used to have that bizarro thing in which odd seasons he did poorly, even seasons he did well. I don't remember Tanner Rorick struggling like this though. I know Doug Fister; it all fell apart for him in the 2015 season for the Nats, but I looked it up. Doug Fister's ERA ultimately in 2015 was under five. Corbin's ERA this season is approaching six. This might be the worst season a national starting pitcher has had since the Nats got good beginning with that 2012 season.
1: Yeah, boy, that's a good one, and I'm trying to think of any others. Dan Heron was really bad the year that he was here. Jason Marquis, I know, had some bad stuff in there. But in pretty much all of those cases, you're talking about guys who ultimately didn't stay in the rotation all year, either because they discovered an injury or, quite frankly, the team had a better option and they're trying to win, and so they removed him from the equation. Well, right now, Corbin's not going anywhere. And to get back to what you were saying before, I think that's what's troubling about it, and that's why. I do tend to agree with you that the 2019 abuse of him, if you want to call it that to use Zim's word, maybe doesn't really hold up right now because he's not hurt. There's been no physical issue. He's actually throwing the ball now as hard as he has in a couple of years. He's throwing 95 with his fastball. His slider has movement on it. He's not showing signs of some kind of fatigue or it's not like all of a sudden he gets to the fifth or sixth inning and everything's diminished in terms of his stuff. It's not that. He's just making mistakes, and the mistakes get hit really hard. So I agree with you. I don't think it's easy to just point to 2019, and I agree also that I think a lot of people felt like the shortened 2020 season was going to solve all of those issues for all of them. Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, all of them, and obviously that wasn't necessarily the case. So it's a conundrum. It's a big one, and like I said, they can't just hide this somewhere. Strasburg, they have the excuse of he's hurt and who knows what he's going to be like when he comes back, but he's going to be in rehab mode. In Corbin's case, you have to keep putting him out there. There's no other answer to this except trying to get better from him and hope that he can figure this out. Now, maybe the one thing you can start doing if you're Davey Martinez is to say, okay, we're not going to let him face a lineup the third time through. Maybe that's who he is now at this stage of his career. And it's unfortunate if that's the case, but we have seen this happen to him now the last few starts late in a start when he is facing the lineup for the third time they don't have a deep bullpen but maybe their best hope right now is just to limit him to five innings and say okay that's enough you got through the lineup twice let's move on to the next guy
0: yeah it's just amazing man I mean this is his age 31 season he's not that old he shouldn't be at this point you think about I know Max Scherzer is Max Scherzer but Scherzer is well into his 30s and we don't have these conversations with him this guy, I mean, you, you would have thought you were like at least two or three years away from that with him. And instead, you know, maybe you're right though. That might be where we're at with him. You know, you, you can't, some guys just age in a different manner and some guys aren't blessed the way other guys are blessed. And that's the way that it is. You mentioned the home runs that continues to be such an issue. 1.99 home runs per nine innings now for Corbin this year, his worst home run rate of his career. It's been a nightmare for him. We're all rooting for the guy to get on track, but it's just not happening. 22 starts, ERA of 583, nowhere close to being good enough. That chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring. Only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station, Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer
3: along with some white. Time now for this afternoon's official starting lineups and batting orders. For the visiting Nationals, Victor Robles leads off in center field, batting second The shortstop Alcides Escobar. It's Ryan Zimmerman at first base batting third, batting fourth, the right fielder, Josh Bell.
0: We had a very interesting defensive alignment for the Nationals in this game on Sunday. That which had been discussed, that which had been suspected, ended up taking place on Sunday. Josh Bell was the national starting right fielder. Yes, that Josh Bell. So I guess this is kind of a two-part thing because there was an anticipation that Juan Soto might start on Sunday off him having pinch hit on Saturday night. That was not the case. And then Bell, who has played some right field in his career, but when I say some, I want to emphasize that word, some. He hadn't played right field in a major league regular season game since 2016. And he only really played like a handful of games that year. It's not like he played a bunch there. But he was out there in right on Sunday afternoon. I know he had been taking balls in the outfield. Although my understanding had been that had been more left field than right field. Uh, so I guess where are we with Soto and what'd you think about Joshi in right on Sunday?
1: So where we are with Soto is like we said, he pinch hit on Saturday night and they did come up to pinch hit again on Sunday. And what he told Davey was that he was fine to hit, but when he was on the bases, he still felt it just a little bit. And they said, okay, let's not push this. There's no reason to do that. Especially with an off day Monday before they play in New York on Tuesday. So I think the hope is that they'll get him back out there on Tuesday, but clearly they're not going to take any real big chances right now with Juan Soto, given the state of things for the team. So because of that, they needed an outfielder and they're facing a the lefty. And so your options are essentially to keep going with Stevenson or Para against the lefty, which is not a great option, or to do what Davey has been thinking about for about a month now, really since Kyle Schwarber got hurt back at the beginning of July, and that is put Josh Bell in the outfield and allow him and Ryan Zimmerman to be in the lineup together. So he felt like this was the time to do it at last. Now, the reason right field versus left field, because you're right, pretty much everything that I had seen him do work-wise before games was in left. The thought there was that in Atlanta in particular, it's an easier right field. It's shallower, and left field is a lot more ground to cover. And Bell, actually, his Professional experience in the outfield is pretty much all in right field. Now it has been a while. 2016 as a rookie with the Pirates, but he came up as a right fielder and played 179 games there to start his professional career in 2012, 13, 14. It's a long time ago, obviously. But he said that he felt perfectly comfortable out there. And, you know, it turned out. Didn't really make any difference. There were only two balls that were hit to him. One of them was a double that he had to track in the corner, and he did kind of overthrow the cutoff man. But I don't think it would have made a difference as to the outcome of the play. I was kind of hoping to see some more action. I think he was actually hoping to see some more action out there. He said it it kind of was a little – he felt very removed from the game in a way that he hasn't in a long time when you're standing, you know, 250 feet away instead of 90 feet away.
0: So I think a few things. Number one, because the Nats are where they are this season – I think it's perfectly acceptable to try things like this. Like I I said this a few episodes ago, this is kind of like a blank canvas, these final two months. And it's unfortunate that you're in this position, but take advantage of this. You know, try things out, try people out in different places. If you're really curious about, hey, can this guy do this? Can that guy do that? Give him a shot, see what they can do. So I, I think it's perfectly acceptable in that regard. Obviously, the last thing you want for Josh Bell, though, with him hitting as he has hit since the start of May, would be for him to get hurt doing this. So I'm assuming, you know, they're comfortable with him out there. He's comfortable out there. Like the last thing I want to see with Josh Bell is him turn a knee, chasing a ball in the right center field gap. And, you know, he's out for six weeks or something like that. So as long as they're good with it, you know, and he's good with it, fine. But, you know, I think ultimately we have to say, like, this is another indictment of their lack of positional versatility because, I mean, this is not the plan, right? You didn't sign Josh Bell to do this. This was never an idea going into the season. Like we said, he hadn't done this since 2016. If they had other viable options, And I know it's different now because of the sell-off, but Josh Bell would not be playing a corner outfield spot like this. Because Ryan Zimmerman can only play first base, when you want to start Zimmerman, that leaves Bell as the odd man out, assuming you're not playing in an American League park. And so that's what this was, to me, anyway, on Sunday. And, you know, that's the way it is with this roster this year. Zimmerman had a great game on Sunday. You know, we can get to that here next. But uh, I think that's notable, too. Like next season, I don't know, unless Bell looks great in right field, I don't think the plan for next year is going to be Josh Bell to play part time in a quarter outfield spot.
1: No, I, I agree. And it, and it does speak to we've talked about all year long, the roster construction. And as much as everyone loves Ryan Zerman and as important as he's been to them over the long haul and even this year as well, to carry two guys on your roster who only play first base is a tough thing to do. <laughs> especially when you're carrying a shorter bench like they have for most of the year as well because they've wanted an extra reliever. So that is a tough spot to be in. Now, maybe if everyone had stayed healthy and the season had turned out the way that they thought it would all along, it wouldn't be that big a deal. We'd really think of Zim more as a pinch hitter, start at first base occasionally, and Bell would get some games off. Let's also point out that Bell's success from the right side of the plate against lefties has helped create this scenario. I think they envisioned all all along that he was much weaker from that side of the plate and so would probably be on the bench those days. Well, no, he's proven to be very effective both sides of the plate, so they want to get him in there as much as possible. But I think we're going to see it on occasion the rest of the way. It's going to have to be the right matchups and all that kind of stuff. This isn't going to be a regular thing because Zim also isn't going to play every day on top of all that. And then this offseason, they're going to decide, and most importantly, Ryan Zimmerman's going to decide what he wants to do moving forward. But you would think that based on what Bell has shown us about his ability to hit both sides of the plate, play every day, to bounce back from his awful start to the season, that you have to go into next year with him as your everyday first baseman. doesn't mean 162, but it also doesn't mean, you know, a hundred starts with somebody else splitting time with him in a platoon. So if Ryan Zimmerman elects to return, I think you have to think of it differently than you do this year. And that is going to leave them with some issues positionally, unless there's a DH in the NL next year, which could happen, but we probably aren't going to know that for a long time.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. If the Nats were an American League team, this Bell-Zimmerman setup would have made more sense, but because there is no universal DH this year and because the Nationals have not yet been relocated to the AL, uh, it's been an issue this year. Now, like I said, Zimmerman did have a really good game on Sunday. I do want to give him credit for this. Three for five with two doubles, a single, and two RBI. the set of the pitch, swing and a fly ball, left center field toward the gap. Duval on the run, already
3: on the run, it's down into the wall. Escobar will score. Zimmerman is into second with his second double and third hit of the game. He drives in his second run of the game,
0: and now he represents the tying run at second with two out. He was the Nats starting first baseman for the first time this month. He had not started a game for the Nats at first base since July 31st. He has not been starting much lately as we just chronicled. But he looked good. He looked good in this series. He had that big first pitch double to left field in the Nats three-run ninth in the win on Saturday night. And he comes through with three two-out hits in this game on Sunday. Two-out full count opposite field double to right field in the top of the first. Two-out full count opposite field to RBI single to right center in the Nats two-run seventh. And Zim had been down in that count at 1.02. And then a two-out RBI double to left center in the top of the ninth despite having been down in that count at one point, one, two, as the Nats forged, you know, another one of these uh, rallies, or I guess in this case, a mini rally and that ninth inning made things at least pseudo interesting. But, you know, it's funny with Zimmerman. He was so hot early in the year from a power hitting standpoint, the numbers have come down. He, he still does have a pretty healthy slugging percentage on the year. And we do still see this, right? Like he is a capable batter. I mean, it, 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 you know, he's not built anymore to play every day, but he can hit. And we've had these snapshots, especially recently of him doing well in some big spots. And he, he came through really in three big spots in this game on Sunday.
1: And he still rakes lefties, you know, that has been going on for years and years now that hasn't changed. He's always been streaky. As we know, when he gets hot, he gets really hot and can carry a team for weeks at a time. When he goes cold, he can go really cold for a while. But at the end of the year, you know what you're going to get from him, even at this stage of his career, even at his age. So yeah, it has absolutely been worth it to have him in this role this year. And I think there is a scenario that you can concoct in your head to say that maybe he could still fit in next year if Heath's up to it, if it's the right role for him, if it's the right direction for the team. What you just don't want to have happen is them to get boxed into this corner again where you have a player who's very limited in what he can provide for you, even if that skill is good and valuable to you, if you don't have the flexibility around the rest of the diamond and the rest of your bench in particular. So if somehow Zim does come back for another year, it's really on Rizzo to make sure that the rest of the roster is versatile enough to compensate for that, for having two first basemen on your roster if there is no DH. We'll see how this happens. There's a big decision for Ryan to have to make here at some point, I don't know where he's going to go with it. We've talked about this since the sell-off. I think it would be perfectly understandable if he said, I don't know that I really want to put my body through what I have to, to go through a season in which I don't expect our team to win. I think he would be totally at peace with it. But I also think he has shown that he can still play. It's not outrageous to think he could still be a productive big league player. And as we know, he's not going to go play for somebody else. He's not going to join Max and Trey in LA. (laughs) If he comes back, it's going to be here. He will retire as a Washington national.
0: Yeah. I mean, the vibe you get is that he's leaning toward retirement. Just if you're kind of trying to read the tea leaves, uh, you know, I suppose that could always change. I also think from a Nationals perspective, I don't think that would be so terrible. I, I think now's probably a good time for that. I, I don't know that they need to be spending four or $5 million again on him for a season. And, you know, you're kind of boxing the corner, like we just said, get younger, get more positionally versatile. I, I think, you know, this off season would be a good time for that, but, you know, we'll see what he ends up doing. In terms of the young players for the Nationals, you know, it ended up being a mixed series for guys like Victor Robles and Carter Keyboom and Luis Garcia. You know, Luis Garcia, save for the game in which he hit the two homers, really had not been doing much. He does have himself, though, a couple of hits in this game on Sunday. It was good to see that leadoff single through the right side of the infield in the Nats one run third, despite having been down to the count at 1.02, and then a leadoff double off the right center field wall and the Nationals two-run seventh, So good to see that. Keyboom did not have a very good series. He on Sunday went 0-3 with a walk and a couple of strikeouts. And I had to note this with Robles. So he does have an RBI single in the game on Sunday. Let me give him credit for that. Went out first pitch, ribby single to left center, and the Nats two-run seventh. But what happened with Robles in the Nats one-run third, I thought really was like a snapshot of why Davey has gotten annoyed with Victor this season. So he bunts the ball into the air for a force out at second base for the first out in that inning. And then he almost gets picked off of first base in that inning. Now he wasn't picked off, but but if he gets picked off there, I can only imagine what Davey would have done. Like we probably wouldn't have seen Victor play for the next six weeks if he'd gotten picked off in that spot. I just, I wish that stuff with Victor Robles would not happen because it gives Davey an excuse not to start Victor, not to play Victor. So I don't know. I thought overall a mixed series for a lot of these younger guys for the Nationals.
1: Yeah. The other thing about Victor in that inning, you mentioned him bunting there. Well, he's bunting with two on and nobody out, and he's facing a lefty. Like, if ever there's a spot that he should feel confident about his ability to hit a ball well, that should be it. So what does it say that he's bunting? And I don't think he's bunting on command. I think he's bunting on his own there. We didn't ask that question postgame, but my guess is he's bunting on his own, especially because the way he, it was a, a push bunt to the first base side, that's like trying to bunt for a hit. So if he's not confident that he can put together a good enough swing against a lefty with two runners on base, that doesn't really bode well. In the bigger picture. And it does tell you that he's not feeling it and hasn't for a while. He's scrambling and is trying just to come up with any way to get himself on track here. There's been a few moments here and there, but it has just not stuck. Even out of the leadoff spot, it has not stuck yet. They're going to keep playing him because there's no other alternative right now. And like we've said, you use these last two months to make your evaluations because the last thing you want to do is get to the end of this season and say, okay, well, what do we think Victor Robles is? Do we think he's our center fielder? Or do we not? Do we think he's our leadoff hitter? Or do we not? You need to have a pretty good idea by the end of this year where you're going with him. And it's up to him now to make the case for himself and stuff like that. Little things like that. I know even on a day when he gets on base and he had an RBI single later in the game, but stuff like that, I do think it bothers Davey. And I think it bothers Mike Rizzo because it's a sign of him just having not figured it out yet situationally what to do. And it's a sign to me of a lack of confidence in his own abilities that he's trying to bunt with two on facing the lefty.
0: Yeah, I didn't like seeing that. I'm a Victor guy, but that was disappointing what went down there in that inning.
4: Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg national season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit frednats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today.
2: It's
3: one and two to Escobar. Free to the plate. Swing a fly ball, left center field, shallow, racing in. It's going to dunk in in front of Peterson for a hit. Throw to second is not in time. Robles safe there. Scoring on the play is Garcia on a bloop single to center field for Alcides Escobar. Nationals take the lead, 1-0 in the third inning.
0: Well, if I ask the question, who was the Nationals' best hitter in this series? An appropriate answer, believe it or not, is Alcides Escobar who has another multi-hit game on Sunday, a double and an RBI single, a one-out RBI bloop single to center field on a one-two pitch in the top of the third, because that's what this guy does. He is the king of dirty hits, you know, dumpster diving hits, but also a king of two-strike hits. This guy is so good in two-strike situations, especially when he's down in counts like 0-2-1-2. So he comes through there. And then he has a two-out first-pitch double in that Nationals' ninth inning. Now, it was a misplay to an extent in the outfield, but he hit the ball pretty hard and pretty far. So it's not like that was just a total gift of a hit from that Braves defense. But Alcides Escobar, right? Alcides Escobar, who had not played in the majors since 2018, Alcides Escobar, who in that 2018 season had a minus 2.2 wins above replacement for baseball reference. That is awful, okay? That should be like a lifetime sentence to you never playing at the major league level again. That same Alcides Escobar, Goes 5-12 with two doubles, three singles, and a walk in this series. He now, over 130 plate appearances for the Nats, has a .344 on-base percentage. I know we've talked about this, but I am amazed that he has been as productive as he has been in any other situation, right? The Nats sold off. They're trying to get younger. Alcides Escobar, age 34 season, as the Nats' number two batter and starting shortstop in all three games of this series, would have been criminal. We would have been like, what is Davey doing starting this guy? But man... Like I said, he really, in a lot of ways, was the Nats' most productive hitter
1: in this series. He also had a really nice play in the hole at shortstop. And I think whether it's been second base or shortstop, he has done a very nice job out there. And yeah, it's kind of changing my perception of who he is and what he could be for them. And maybe it's changing the front office's perception as well. You mentioned the the two-strike hitting. I put the stat out after that third inning RBI single, hitting 274 with two strikes, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot. But in the big leagues, that's, that's like a hundred points better than league average. And it's second best among all the Nats who, who play at it somewhat regularly. You know, who's number one on that list, bizarrely is Jordy Mercer, 298 batting average with two strikes. You know, who's last on that list? This one won't surprise you. Who's last on the list with two strikes among the the semi regulars on the team is Victor Robles at 111. So that tells you a lot right there. But yeah, look, he's got a set of skills that like we've been talking about are valuable. You can't have a whole team of Alcides Escobars, but you have one or two of them, and they can make a difference. And this team needs a shortstop for 2022. I don't know if it's Luis Garcia. Maybe it is, but they may still view him as a second baseman. Either way, one of those two positions is unfilled, and they need somebody to do that. And I think they're going to go out and try to acquire somebody this winter. Probably aren't going to spend a ton of money. On that spot. You're probably not going to invest heavily in a, in a big-time free agent because if they were willing to do that, they probably would have re-signed Trey Turner or at least brought him back for another year. So We're way ahead of ourselves here, but I think Escobar should at least be in the discussion depending on how they want to go with this, where they want to spend their money next year. I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world to bring him back for a year, let him mentor some of the young infielders, and just be one of a few veteran stabilizers for them in what otherwise is going to be a rebuilding year with a lot of young kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have a team with everyone being 25 and under, like you're going to have some veterans. And so if a guy like Escobar is someone who's positionally versatile, can play two key spots in second base and shortstop, puts balls in play, has a good attitude, doesn't cost you a lot of money, I don't think it's a terrible idea. You know, we'll see where we're at come the end of the season. But yeah, I mean, the fact that we're even talking about this is so ridiculous. But it's the truth. The guy has done a really good job. Cash considerations to the Royals for Osiris Escobar is proving to be another one of these Mike Rizzo steals in a trade. All right, one more item from this game. Nats only used one reliever, Gabe Klobositz. Klobo was out there on Sunday and did a good job. Two scoreless innings, including a perfect bottom of the seventh on six pitches. The Nats bullpen in this series ended up pitching really well, save for the Javi Guerra outing in the loss on Friday night. Guerra in that game, three runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. But beyond that, the Nats bullpen did a good job. Klobisic's a good job on Sunday. And it it feels like he's the, the king right now in the Nats bullpen of, if there is a guy who can go out there and work pitch efficient, it's him. He's done this a few times, that perfect bottom of the seventh on six pitches. He's done that kind of thing before. So if nothing else, he's got that going for him.
1: He throws strikes, and that was the book on him even before he got up here, that that's what he was doing in the minors. So, yeah, I mean, that's a manager's dream. is a reliever who comes in and throws strikes and doesn't walk the leadoff hitter like we've talked about with so many others. I'm really interested to see how this plays out the rest of the year with their bullpen options and, you know, who sort of ascends to what roles. Obviously, Finnegan has now become the closer. Eventually, I think we'll see Rainey again, and I'm curious how he figures into it. I think eventually we're going to see Wander Suero again. We'll see how he figures into it. But Mason Thompson has looked good in limited time. We've seen him. Klobositz has looked good limited time that we've seen him. I'm forgetting somebody else on that list, but there are some options here, and you want to see what you have. Oh, Andres Machado has looked, I think at times, good, maybe not as consistently good as some of the others. So this is a great opportunity to test these guys out. They are ultimately going to be pitching some big innings on the road against teams that are in pennant races, like perhaps this week against the Mets. Hostile crowd. I don't know that Atlanta was really necessarily feeling that much like that, so I'm curious to see how they handle that. But it's an important storyline the rest of the way, because again, this is going to help determine what do they do in the offseason? Do they go out and get a couple of big-name relievers, even on short-term deals, because they need to fill out a bullpen? Or do they say, hey, you know what? We have enough young, controllable cost-effective arms that we can make a run with that and let's see how it goes
0: yeah atlanta in the middle of a world series doesn't feel like a big spot with the way that town (laughs) has been over the years with the braves i feel sympathy sometimes for mike rizzo because it feels like he's darned if he does he's darned if he doesn't with a bullpen right if he spends money on guys in an offseason it doesn't work out like Brad hand okay i like that signing i thought it made sense one year ten and a half million dollars did that really work out ultimately you know it, it was iffy at best
1: well got a riley adams so maybe that was worthwhile Yeah, I again. guess
0: maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like if Rizzo doesn't do anything and the bullpen is bad and we've had that happen before, then it was like, oh, what are they doing in the, in the offseason? Why don't they bring in more guys? So it's like, I don't know. You threw your hands up. But yeah, like Finnegan and Klobisitz and some of these other guys, you know, maybe just maybe that's the, uh, the foundation for the Nats bullpen next year. This is how bullpens are. You never know with these guys. So. Look, to me, if Matt Albers could be a dominant reliever for the Nationals in 2017, <laughs> anything is possible with any of these guys. So we're open-minded. And Clovis at 6'7", 270, I mean, come on. You talk with the last name, he looks the part, if nothing else. So
1: I'm disappointed he isn't wearing the stirrups anymore, though. It's been the long pants the last few games. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not happy with that. He's ruining the look, Gabe. Come on, bring the stirrups back.
0: And when he was warming up on Sunday, they were playing Dua Lipa. Okay, you don't play pop music for Gabe Klovisits. You got to play like Metallica or Iron Maiden. Okay, like hardcore heavy metal out there when he's out there. Like that's just that's the way that's got to be. He's got to get back to Nationals Park. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the podcast as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. That's NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you want to send us something in voice memo form. So you can write us, but you can also uh, ask a question or make a comment by recording those things into your phone and then emailing that file to us again, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on NatsChat are courtesy Of 1067, the fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
3: Gurriel at first, no balls, two strikes. Corbin fires. Swinging a tapper, third base side of the mound. Corbin off the hill has it. He gloves, he throws. He's out at first, and the side retired. Patrick Corbin has pitched two scoreless innings out of the bullpen, and he sends the World Series to the eighth inning.
4: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early,